Hello there, I'm Adam Spencer and this is Telstra Behind the Mic, a series of ideas, discussions and exchanges focused on insights, inspirations and innovations. Well, we've all heard about a good idea at the right time, but the same idea at the wrong time, well, that's a different story. It's all in the timing. And so now's a good time to meet Daniel Pink. A second is not a natural thing. It's something that human beings have made up. A week. A week is not a thing. It's something that human beings have made up. But let's talk about a day. A day is a thing. There sure are a lot of how-to books on the market, but Daniel Pink released what may well be the first when-to book. We can't control it, right? We're on a planet, and no matter where we are on the planet, whether we're here or whether we're here, that planet's going to turn. And so a day has a, has a profound effect on our behaviour. Now, every work environment has an ebb and flow to its day. No matter if it's a factory, a hospital, or an entrepreneur working alone at their kitchen table. And in recent times, we've seen our usual work environments turned on their head. So I want you to think about your typical day. What time do you start? What kind of jobs do you tackle first? The good, the bad, or the ugly? How many breaks do you take? When do you find yourself wasting the day? And importantly, when do you think you do your best work or have your best ideas? I started wondering about timing because I was making all kinds of timing decisions in my own life. When should I do this kind of work? When should I do that kind of work? When should I start a project? When should I abandon a project that's not working? And I was making those decisions in a very sloppy, haphazard way. That frustrated me. That was Daniel Pink speaking on stage at Telstra Vantage. And he's written When, the scientific secrets of perfect timing. So we took, if you'll excuse the pun, the time to talk about his evidence-based examination of when the best time of day is for us to undertake specific tasks. This pattern that the, the day has a huge effect on our mood and our performance. Um, in general, what we see is human beings go through the day in three stages, a peak, a trough, a recovery. Most of us go through it in that order. People who are more evening-oriented, people who wake up late and go to sleep late, people who are night owls, they go through, they're much more complicated. They hit their peak later in the day, in the early afternoon and, and evening. There is something called a chronotype. That's a fancy word for are you a morning person or an evening person? Do you, is your natural tendency to wake up early and go to sleep early, or is your natural tendency to wake up late and go to sleep late, right? So these things about, I'm a morning person, I'm not a morning person, I'm an evening person, I'm not an evening person. That's, there's actually a real science there. But 15% of us are very strong morning people, larks. About 20% of us are very strong evening people, owls. About two-thirds of us are in between, what I call third birds. So the big, 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 big takeaway here in all this research is this, that we think that timing is an art, but timing is really a science. We make our timing decisions based on intuition and guesswork and even by default, and that's the wrong way to do it. We should be making them based on evidence, based on science, based on a very, very rich, deep body of data and evidence. Where do we get the data sustaining these stages oh, yeah. of the day there, hypothesis? There are, there's a, there's a, it comes from a number of different fields. And one of the cool things about this whole line of research is that the research is being done in social sciences, in biological sciences, in cognitive sciences, and using a lot of uh, 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 
complex math and big data as, as analytic tools. But one of the best studies on this is a study of 500 million tweets. <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine that. Ugh. Oh, painful. And what they did is they looked at the emotional content of the words in these tweets. Does the word convey a positive sentiment, a negative sentiment, or a neutral sentiment? They mapped it over the time of day. And what they found is, is this pattern, is that mood is higher early in the day. It drops considerably in the middle of the day and recovers later in the day. But we, we can't just shut out in the middle of the day and go, I'm in my down, I'm in my, my trough, I'm not going to work for the next two or three hours. You suggest different types of work are best suited to where you are in your daily cycle? Exactly. It's a matter of being intentional. And that's, that's the thing that I discovered in looking at this research is that we're not very intentional about when we do things. So for most of us, for all of us should be doing our analytic work, work that requires heads down, focus during our peak, which again, for most of us is early in the day. That could be writing a report. Um, it could be analyzing data. A chapter of your book, for example, where you really need to home in. Where I really need to figure, you just get the words on the page and make them march in order and do those kinds of things and not be distracted because our peak is when we are least distractible. We're highest in what's called vigilance. Um, during the troughs, what we should be doing is I shouldn't be doing, say, my administrator. I'm a more of a morning person than an evening person. I should be doing my analytic work during the morning. I shouldn't be doing my administrative work filling out forms for taxes, uh, answering routine email, making a train reservation. I shouldn't be doing that in the morning. I should try to move that kind of work to the period where I and many people are, I'm at my worst, which is early to mid-afternoon. Because if you get distracted for a couple of minutes in the middle of booking a ticket, you can go back and still do it. You haven't lost the momentum. It's not going to be a less quality ticket booking for you. You've, you've got the job done. Exactly. Exactly. It's routine. It's, it's, it doesn't require massive amounts of, of cognitive firepower, nor does it require massive amounts of creativity. It just requires being semi-awake and getting something done. And, and the problem is, is that what we see in organizations is that, for instance, they, they, people schedule meetings at various times of day. And so if I'm a writer, last month I talked to a copywriter and he said, God, I'm, I, you know, I do my best writing in the morning, but I can't do it because my boss makes me go to a 9 a.m. staff meeting every day and an 11 a.m. meeting about strategy every other day. And, you know, to me, that's like that old joke about a guy who goes into a doctor's office and he says, doctor, it hurts when I do this. And the doctor says, don't do that. And that's, that's, you know, that's really the solution there. We need to be, we need to, to, to do the right work at the right time. One last question on the workplace. You worked as a chief speechwriter for Vice President Al Gore. If you'd managed to get this message into the Clinton White House, could, could the world have been a different place? <laughs> oh, man. You know, as much as I, as much as I want to rewrite history and be the author of that rewritten history, uh, I'm, not, I'm not so sure about that. I think the bigger issue here is that this is a topic that when I was working then, ne timing never came up. Hmm. Uh, there was never a discussion about, hey, what's the, what's the best time of day to do something, let alone all this other research that we have out there about how do beginnings affect us, how do midpoints affect us, how do endings affect us. Um, and I think that the key here is that, for me at least, is that this batch of research that I've done, probably more than any book that I've of the other books that I've written has kind of widened my own scope. I sort of see a different dimension of life. So I am much more intentional about um, uh, episodic markers like beginnings, middles, and ends. And I'm much more intentional in my own work about uh, when I do things. So I should write in the morning, along with my therapy, 
but don't ask for feedback in the afternoon. Now, a lot of Daniel's work focuses on the workday and how we can improve our productivity. But there's more to life than just your job, your health, your hobbies, relationships. And I guess if two people had a lifelong relationship, they'd do well to understand each other's rhythms if there were difficult discussions that had to be had. Absolutely. I mean, you see this in... Right. This is. I think this is a. It's a. It's a big. It, it can be a big issue in relationships. Even something as mundane as sleeping patterns. So if you look at um, uh, people's uh, sleep, sleeping patterns in general, men are owlier than women. So uh, what you see, there's some interesting research in chronobiology showing that among um, straight couples, heterosexual couples um, of the same age, the I mentioned before that. Uh, we go through this period of extreme alleyness and then return to larkiness over time. It turns out that, that women return to larkiness faster than men. So if you look at heterosexual couples of the same age, typically the man is going to sleep later than the woman. And so you have straight couples often have incompatible sleeping patterns where the man is, uh, and so you actually have more, believe it or not, I know, more compatible sleeping patterns when the woman is maybe 10 or 15 years younger than the man. And we do hear that anecdote on, you know, not tonight, dear, I've got a headache. Could that be that that guy's just hitting the perfect upswing of his day and everything's right and the woman's just peaked out and she's well on the way to sleep? It could be, but there are other factors there too. Basically, testosterone peaks in the morning. So, you know, but but as I I like to say on this issue, your mileage may vary. Uh, Yeah, sporting teams. So I, I, I like my favourite football team, the Swans, play most of their games 7.30 at night, okay. some at 4.40 in the afternoon. Okay. The occasional one o'clock game, uh, they've, they've, how do they get themselves as up and ready to go at one in the afternoon as they do for a game that might finish past 10 at night? Well, there, and it's, so there's some really, really interesting research out this, uh, on this on this very topic of athletic performance at different times of day. And it shows there are differences, for instance. So, so not in the AFL, but in, the, in, in American football, there's some very interesting research showing that when teams that are based on the East Coast of the United States play on the West Coast at night, they do worse uh, because it's their non-optimal time. Uh, the other thing that we see, so you mentioned, so a one o'clock game, a four o'clock game, and a seven o'clock game. Um, there's some very interesting research out there on world records that show that a disproportionate number of world records are set between 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. local time. And that has to do, there there are changes in our physical performance. And one of the things we see in that window between 4 p.m., around 4 p.m. and 7 p.m., not late at night and not during that midday trough, is that that time of day, hand-eye coordination is greater. Obviously, Australian football needs massive hand-eye coordination. Um, uh, Speed is greater. Obviously, that's another important thing. And so you, there's a disproportionate number of world records and speed events that are set between that period. Wow. Uh, lung function is higher during that time. And so if you have a, you know, if, if you have, I, I think that that period between four and seven would be an optimal time for the Swans to, uh, Swans to play, particularly if they're playing a team that is from a different time zone. Do those observations work the same for just a run-of-the-mill person who's going to bang out 45 minutes at, at the gym or running on the beach? Yes and no. And, there's, and, and the research on exercise and time of day distills to some very useful principles for people. Um, morning exercise, it depends on your goals. Morning exercise is good for certain things. It's, it seems to be better for habit formation. So people who exercise in the morning are more likely to sustain the habit too. Um, morning exercise is um, better 
uh, exercise in general, uh, aerobic exercise in particular, is a significant mood booster. And, and it's in a fairly enduring mood booster. So if you exercise in the morning, you get that mood boost throughout a big chunk of the day. If I exercise, say, at seven at night or eight at night, I'm going to sleep away some of that mood boost and waste it. Um, and so for habit formation and, um, and mood boosting, morning exercise seems to be very effective. However, for performance, afternoon exercise is better. And I think it has to do with late afternoon, early evening exercise is better. I think it largely has to do, believe it or not, with something as mundane as body temperature. Uh, our body temperature peaks during that period. So, you're, so what we see is that people, um, as I said, lung function is higher, speed is greater, hand-eye coordination is better. Uh, people are less prone to injury then. And people often enjoy exercise more during that, that period of day. So, so morning exercise is better for habit formation, for mood boosting, also for weight loss. Afternoon exercise is better for avoiding injury, increasing performance, and enjoying it more. Well, with that knowledge, I just might be able to get my dream job of running off the half-back line of the Sydney Swans. It's common sense what Daniel says when he spells it out, but it's also a challenge to think of redefining your life to make the time of day work for you. Now, I should also mention another chat from this series about challenging your way of thinking, and that was with author Charles Duick. Charles delves into the reasons behind those habits you just can't shake, and he urges you to think smarter, faster, and better. People who are who tend to be very successful, they tend to be much more creative or seen as being much more creative than others. And one of my favorite examples of this is Frozen, right? Everyone knows this movie, Frozen. Huge hit. What most people don't know about Frozen is that it was on the brink of catastrophe until literally just two months before it appeared in movie theaters. That's author Charles Dewey. Author Daniel Pink's been asking us to think about timing. Now, once you've got a grasp on the ups and downs of your 24-hour cycle, Take a step back and think about your annual cycle. There are predictable patterns as we move throughout the year. And when you understand those, you can figure out when's the best time to start a new exercise program. Or when's your spouse most likely to file for a divorce? Timing affects us not only in the unit of a day, but through many, many broader units, including the lifetime. So let's talk about the marathon studies. Uh, this is done by Adam Alter at NYU and Hal Hirschfield at UCLA. They looked at the age at which people were most likely to run their first marathon. And what they found is that people were disproportionately likely to run the first marathon when they were what they call nine enders. And they were 29, 39, 49, and 59. And the reason is that we think is that when you get when you're 29, you're, you're reaching the end of your 20s, you say, oh my gosh, I got to do something. Um, and so one of the effects of endings is that endings energize us. They get us to, to kick a little harder, to move a little faster. So if you look at this, 29-year-old is twice as likely to run a first marathon as a 28-year-old, twice as likely to run a first marathon as a 30-year-old. Mm. There is no physiological reason for that. It all has to do with the effect of endings on our behavior, and energize us. You look at 49-year-olds, 49-year-olds are three times as likely to run a first marathon as 50-year-olds. What about an individual year? Is there peaks and troughs in the year, and would that flip from hemispheres if they did exist? That's a great question, too. Um, the, the, the seasonal variation is a little dicier. I think the evidence is a little less clear. What is interesting is that um, it seems that when the season you were born has an effect on whether you're a lark or an owl. Uh, and, and, and the explanation for that is basically um, exposure to light uh, in utero 
uh, seems to have an effect on our chronotype. We also see some, some seasonal variation in, uh, I mentioned this briefly during the talk, uh, divorce filings. Uh, so for instance, yes. uh, divorce filings spike in March, believe it or not. And the reason for that, we think, is that um, during, the, during the end of the year, the holiday season, people try to keep it together. So there's very few divorce filings around Christmas time, that end of the year. Families try to keep it together. Either for the sake of the kids or, come on, let's give this one last go. Exactly. And then what happens is, is that when you get to the new year and you're like, okay, this is hopeless. And then by the time, and the only thing we can really measure in this is, you're a mathematician, so, so, you, so we have to have something to measure. We can't measure the moment someone decides to get divorced. We can only measure when they file something in court. And so... Uh, so the, the beginning of the year comes, you're just like, oh my God, this is hopeless. I got to talk to a lawyer, da, da, da. And they finally get it around in March. There's a massive spikes in divorce filings in, in March. So check your email. You mentioned something fascinating that in terms of the likelihood of becoming a CEO could be affected upon where the economy was at oh, when you enter the workforce. This is, a, this is some really extraordinary research. It's a lot, a lot of this has been done by economists in the U.S., um, Graduating from business school during a recession, uh, you are less likely to become CEO of a large company. Um, what, what that, but that's that's something that would would or wouldn't happen 25, 30 years later. What what's the connection? Well, it has to do with. I'll give you I'll give you an even crisper example that's easier to explain. Graduating from university in a recession versus graduating from university in a boom time that shows up in people's wages literally 20 years later, literally 20 years later. This is the work of Lisa Kahn at Yale. And the reason, again, I don't have to explain to you the difference between correlation and causation. So we know there's a correlation here. We can speculate on causation. And it's this. One of the things that happens is is one of the best ways to raise your salary, especially early in your career, is to switch jobs. And one of the things that happens early in our careers is that we look for the right match between our skills and what an organization needs. And that match is generally imperfect. And so what we do is we try to make a match. Hey, that didn't quite work. I'm going to switch jobs, try another one, switch jobs, try another one. Each time we switch jobs, we typically get a little bit more money and we get closer to the right match. If you graduate in a recession, first of all, you have a harder time finding a first job. Second of all, you could be in a job that's a bad match, but you got nowhere to go. And so you're stuck. So you don't. So you end up making that match much later, and so literally, you, there are, there are ways to predict people's wages based on the unemployment rate in the year they graduated from university. There's some other interesting things over that I think about in my own life, um, over patterns over a lifetime. One of the things you see all over the world is a dip in well-being in midlife across the world. It's really quite remarkable. So what, what they call a U-shaped curve of well-being. So we're happier in our 20s, 30s, decline a little bit in our 40s, really bottom out. I'm in my early 50s, bottom out in our early 50s. I'm at the bottom and then gradually tick back up. And so, um, so for me, I'm at the point in my life when statistically at least, I'm at my lowest point of well-being. So I'm just trying to wait that out. Because I know that if I can just survive, I can ride that, that U-shaped curve up again. Well, for someone who is at the stage in their life when they're meant to be absolutely bottoming out, you're doing quite well, my friend. You're inspiring <laughs> you. people. Very, very therapeutic, Adam. You're, you're getting people <laughs> thinking, you'll get my bill. Daniel Pink, love it to speak with you on Telstra Behind the Mic. Adam, it's a pleasure. Let me wrap up with some takeaways for you. 
We need to be much more deliberate and intentional in scheduling individual and team work. This is the key here. We're not intentional. We're not intentional. How many of you this week have had a to-do list? You're intentional about what you're going to do. We're intentional about who we do things with, but when it comes to when we do certain things, we're not intentional at all, we're not deliberate. We need to be as intentional about when we do things as we are about what we do. Now the onus for a lot of this is on bosses and supervisors. All this information doesn't help if you don't have control over how you structure your workday. So this is a call to everyone out there scheduling a blue sky meeting for 8 a.m. or an in-depth financial review at 1.30 in the afternoon. Schedule your team's tasks around their strengths. We'll all be the better for it. I want to thank Daniel Pink. And don't forget to check out other podcasts in this series with amazing guests like Anusha Ansari, the first female space tourist, Charles Dewig on what you can learn from your habits, good and bad, and the Freakonomist himself, Stephen Dubner. I'm Adam Spencer, and this has been Telstra Behind the Mic.